Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello there and welcome to the podcast. Coming up, Bear Clan's James Fable and drone expert Matt Johnson on the search for those two fugitives in northern Manitoba. M.J. Benias, author of The UFO People, A Curious Culture, and also Don McKenzie. He was the president and CEO of Winnipeg's 1999 Pan Am Games 20 years ago. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. Joining us on the phone now, the executive director of the Bear Clan Patrol, James Fable. James, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. How are you? Excellent. Have you even slept yet? Uh, not really. It's been a crazy 24 hours for the Bear Clan, that's for sure. Since 5 o'clock yesterday afternoon, my phone has been ringing pretty much off the hook. Tell us how this all started. How did your people <clears throat> see these two? Well, um, we, it all started on Friday. Grand Chief Arlen Dumas got a hold of us and uh, got a hold of me and asked if we, I would send a group of uh, volunteers up to support the communities that are without, uh, uh, you know, RCMP support or band constables. So that's that was why we got up there in the first place. Uh, we sent uh, four members to uh, Fox Lake and three members to York Landing at 4:15 yesterday afternoon. The groups in York Landing were doing perimeter checks of the area. And they saw two men um, at the dump, and it struck them as odd because most like nobody goes to the dump without a vehicle to hide in just in case a bear comes along because they are very uh, frequent uh, around there. And so it kind of struck them as odd. And then uh, when they popped their heads up, they they absolutely matched the description of the uh, suspects in the BC homicide. So they they reported it right away to RCMP and and got the ball rolling. And so it was requested that you send Bear Clan people to York Landing, eh? That's how they ended up there? That's correct. And if this ends up being the two fugitives that the RCMP have been looking for, what are the chances of that, right? Yeah, it's like one in a million. When, when, I, when they asked for us to send them up, I never, I never imagined that we would actually encounter them. It was just providing support for the village in the way we, we typically do. The fact that uh, we actually made contact with them is, is just a miracle. And the Mounties got there pretty quickly, too, right? Within 20 minutes of your people sighting these two. Uh, that's my understanding, yes. Uh, but again, the, it's very dense uh, forest there. It's boreal forest, um, hard to move around in. So I, I, it's, it's just uh, shocking that they have been apprehended so far. Well, and if these two are the two fugitives, give me an idea of how you think they got to York Landing, because this is a couple of hours, uh, there's a ferry ride, some water involved, you've been an ice uh, uh, ice road trucker up there, tell me what you think. Uh, well, they, they say that somebody may have inadvertently assisted them, and I believe that's probably the case, because it's a it's a long road to get to uh, Split Lake, and then they, had to get on, they would have had to get on the ferry or steal a boat or something like that to get across, so... Um, there's a lot of things that factor into them getting there, but right now it's all speculation. Right. And can you believe that these two are still out there somewhere after, you know, almost a week out in this, uh, pretty severe terrain? Well, you, you can tell that they're, they're hurting. If they were foraging through the dump for food, then they're absolutely not, you know, utilizing what's available in the forest. So yeah, it's gotta be, it's gotta be rough going for them. Well, James, another example of a great job by your bear clan. Thank you. Thank you. 
James Favel, executive director of the Bear Clan Patrol, on one of his uh, people citing uh, these two uh, fugitives up in York Landing. So as I uh, told you at the start of the show, the RCMP uh, gave us an update on the search for the two fugitives up in northern Manitoba. And uh, one detail that we got is the RCAF, the Royal Canadian Air Force, has joined the RCMP search uh, for these two. And we know that uh, the Mounties have been using drones in the search. And so I thought, perfect opportunity... Uh, to get Matthew Johnson on, president and CEO of M3 Aerial Productions, who's been on the show before. Matthew, good afternoon. Uh, tell me about these drones the Mounties are using. They look pretty cool. Yeah, we saw a couple of videos there that uh, they were using multi-rotor systems. Um, probably what it looked like there was a Matrice platform, uh, which is made by DJI. And uh, they probably got them equipped with some kind of thermal um thermal infrared sensor to be able to look for heat signatures at, at nighttime. So those kids, if they're they're out in the woods, then hopefully they'll be able to show up. And I'm sure, and I'm sure what they're doing, they got several of them, and I'm sure they're sort of doing it by grid. So they're covering a lot of territory in a relatively short amount of time with these drones. As you mentioned, they've got thermal cameras on them so they can see body heat. I imagine one of the challenges might be determining what's an animal and what's a human, right? Yeah, I, uh, I spoke with a, an XRCMP guy who... Uh, was involved in one of the first uh, successful search and rescue uh, operations using a drone a few years ago in Canada. And uh, he said when they went up, they they saw within just a few minutes of going up with the drone, uh, they saw multiple heat signatures. They just had to pick one. The others, I mean, they could have been wolves or deer or whatever animals. And uh, it just happened that they picked the right one and they were able to find a the person who was missing within just a few minutes of getting the drone up in the air. And that was that was actually back in 2013 or 2014. But it was a, it's the same kind of uh, idea. You're going to have to make some decisions on what's what when they're up there. And in five years, the technology has improved a whole bunch compared to you know then 2013 or or, or 2014. And I know you're a big believer in in the drones being used. For search and rescue, this is kind of a, a this is a search and capture, I guess. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, very similar. They're using pretty much all the same sort of tech, techniques. I even I asked my buddy a few days ago uh, if he thought that uh, that the Air Force would be using the Herc out there, and he said he didn't know. And within I don't know, probably a few hours of asking that question, uh, there was the uh, media covered that the Herc was dispatched out there and so I mean that's what they use for search and rescue anytime that someone goes missing up in the wilderness somewhere the the big CC-130 gets uh, dispatched and that flies very low level uh, just a few hundred feet above the ground very low and very slow and, and we've got observers watching out the back and watching out the sides and they're able to, to look for anything that doesn't look like it should be there. Is the drone, uh, the use of drones in an effort like this, uh, probably one of the more important tools, right? I mean, you would have dogs that could follow scent, 
But when you're dealing with terrain like this, uh, I can't imagine anything working better than a drone. Well, I guess put it this way. You've got a, a massive CC-130 Hercules system, which just a few minutes of it, just a few minutes of it being up in the air is worth a drone. So if you had multiple systems, like uh, as you mentioned, they're flying in a grid pattern for multiple reasons, uh, it would give you a, a pretty good sense of what's going on. And I mean, the price of these things are coming down. It's getting more and more economical. So I think that search and rescue operations are, are being revolutionized by this technology and it's only going to get better moving forward. I, I don't know what's going to happen. We hope this ends sooner than later. And we it ends, you know, with everybody being okay. But I have a feeling that when it's all said and done, a drone is going to play an important role in capturing these two. That's that's my gut on this because I know how incredible these things are. Yeah, we saw that at the Western Drone Show, and uh, I think that uh, I hope that it does anyways. I think that that would be a huge boost for the industry. All right, Matthew, thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Al. All right, Matthew Johnson. He is the president and CEO of M3 Aerial Productions. They are using drones to try and find these two, the Royal Canadian Air Force, now involved in the search with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Well, obviously, uh, as they continue to search for the fugitives, that's one of the big stories we are keeping an eye on as we go along here this afternoon. But, hey, other stuff happens, and uh, we got to talk to other interesting people. And joining us now is MJ Benias. He is the author of a new book called The UFO People, A Curious Culture. MJ, nice to meet you. Thanks very much for having me. Nice Thank to meet you, too. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, and a Winnipegger. I didn't know. I'm kind of into this stuff. I, I had no idea you were out there. Oh, yeah. Born and raised in the North End. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Yeah. Have you ever seen a UFO? I have not. Actually, I've never had a UFO sighting or a paranormal experience. Yeah. or any. I'm, I'm a very boring person. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I don't know if I, you know, I thought about this many times. I have never seen one. I don't know if I'd want to see one. I think life would change maybe too dramatically if it maybe, was way eh? too intense. Yeah, yeah. it'd really freak you out, I think. so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you write for Vice, you're a teacher, uh, you wear many hats, and I suppose as you went along and, and did some stories on UFOs and the people involved in seeing them, you at some point said, there's a book here. Yes, definitely. The The research started about seven years ago. Just I met Chris Rutkowski, who's a mutual friend, and yep. um, we just started hanging out and talking, and I started kind of reading several books that he'd written and, and books that um, sort of other people within the UFO community, the UFO greats, yep. wrote, and I started interviewing people because that's kind of my jam. And um, yeah, like you said, right, seven years is sort of culminated in a blog, some articles, yeah. um, and the book, which is kind of why I'm here today, yeah. And the launch is tonight at McNally Robinson Grant Park at 7 o'clock, so people can go there and see you and get the book and say hi, and I'm sure you're going to read from it as well. Usually that uh, is what happens. i got to ask you, I, I love the title, The UFO People, A Curious Culture. Talk about the culture, and then we'll get to some current things that make me kind of scratch my head about about the culture. Sure. You know, I think when we think about people who who look into UFOs, 
the general idea is they're tinfoil hat wearing right. kooky, yeah. crazy people. Mm. And for sure, within the UFO community, there's always going to be, with any community, right? There's going to be people who are a little kooky and crazy. Yeah. But the vast majority of the culture that deals with UFOs is so... Um, it's so differentiated that that there's not one type of person. And this is why I was curious because I walked in thinking I'm going to be dealing with people who are sort of very conspiratorial and, and, and tinfoil hat wearing. Um, but I bumped into and spoke to university professors from Stanford to medical doctors to lawyers to yeah. um, Air Force pilots. I mean, it's yeah, crazy. Right. Military personnel to you know, stay-at-home moms and kids. Like, so it's it's a huge array of people. Um, and that's why it's really curious because it's a subculture that exists, but it's a subculture that doesn't really sort of form into one kind of cohesive identity. It's kind of yeah. all over the place. That's why it's curious to me. So what, the the ones wearing tinfoil hats, they're the ones that get all the attention then? Well, of course. The media loves that type of stuff, right? Mm. The media loves to sell a, a sort of stereotypical image of yeah. someone who, you know, uh, investigates UFOs or believes in UFOs or whatever because it's easier, right? It's easier yeah. to tell a stereotype story versus a story that has a lot more nuance and detail. Yeah. Winnipeg is a known, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, Winnipeg and Manitoba, a known hotbed for UFOs and UFO sightings, right? I mean, Canada's Roswell uh, was was essentially here at, at Falcon Lake, right? Yeah. I mean, you know all about that. Yeah, no, to totally. Winnipeg has uh, a very diverse UFO community, actually. There's a lot of people in Winnipeg who who um, have seen or encountered UFOs. There's a lot of who investigate and research UFOs. So, you know, there's a lot of people involved within the UFO subculture here in Winnipeg. Um, so hopefully they come out tonight. Actually, yeah, it'd be great. Right. But, Buy the book. That's right. <laughs> but, um, you know, realistically, Winnipeg and Manitoba itself has, and the book covers that, has a lot of sort of UFO content yeah. that that a lot of Winnipeggers kind of sink their and teeth into. And my next question was going to be why? Why do you think we have such a, a, a hot, why are we such a hotbed? You know, and it's interesting, you know, whether, you know, again, whether hotbeds are, are real things or maybe it's just Winnipeggers, we like to talk about weird stuff. Yeah. And maybe because we like to talk about it, all those stories come out a lot more mm -hmm. often. Um, people who, who are a little more reserved, maybe some cities that are a little more reserved, uh, don't want to talk about that type of stuff. But Winnipeg, you know, we're a very open, friendly place. We like to share our stories. Yeah. Um, so I think people are more willing to talk about their stories. And then as those stories get talked about, that UFO kind of, those, those UFO and strange stories come out and suddenly you live in a province that's odd and haunted and scary. <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting time uh, in the UFO world because a lot of people believe we are on the verge of finding out about those alien. Well, Storm Fifty One, Storm Area Fifty One, uh, millions and millions of people have signed up saying they're going to Storm Area Fifty One in September. They want to see the ships and they want to see the aliens. It's that that entire internet phenomenon is is wild to me. It was started by a young man who just posted it as a joke yeah. um, after he saw Bob Lazar, who's a sort of a well-known UFO character on Joe Rogan, and then he saw a documentary that's currently on Netflix. I just watched it. Yeah, yeah it's very good. And um, the he just as a lark created a Facebook group called Storm Area 51 um, where he wanted to see them aliens or whatever the tagline was. Yeah. And within, what was it, two weeks? Yeah. He has something like two or three million people on it. Yes. Um, it's, it, I think people are naturally drawn to UFOs, right? Mm -hmm. People are naturally drawn to UFO stories and and want to, to try to get to the bottom of the mystery. Yeah. Um, and that's the beauty about UFOs, right? It's a mystery that kind of never ends. 
um, and we're constantly chasing them and constantly going after sort of the stories that people tell about UFOs, um, which is, I think, why the cultural the cultural aspects are so important. They're so prevalent and they're everywhere. And people, you, like, you can talk to anyone on the street and say, you know, have you ever seen a UFO? And they'll probably say, you know, ah, I'm not sure, but my mom did or my brother did right. or, you know, my father-in-law saw this or, yeah. or whatever. So we all kind of, there's a sort of silent majority mm. of people. Yeah, and the latest one uh, is Stormlock Ness. Now that's happening online. I don't know if you heard about that one or not. I've heard whispers, but the I haven't... next day, the oh, next really? day after storming Area Fifty One, we're going to go to a, go a lake in Scotland, which yeah. is a much nicer <laughs> vacation spot. I would much rather than, go there than a bay, a secret base in the Nevada desert. That's is, right. is kind of the way I look at it. So, uh, as you did the book, what were some interesting things you found? Out? What were some curious things you found about the culture? Um, a few things. One, that there is a significant collection of, of people who are um, typically quite wealthy, um, and they're usually very, um, uh, they're very sort of, they're, they're experts in their respected, respected fields. So they're either, um, you know, doctors or they're geneticists or they're tech entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. And they have significant interest in the UFO phenomenon, not because of aliens or anything like that, but they're interested because if this is some emergent technology, how can we harness that technology and then use it to better humanity or to make money or whatever? Um, so I got to interview a lot of individuals like this who work in California and Silicon Valley, um, who work at Stanford University, wherever, um, and their interest in the phenomenon and people's stories about the phenomenon phenomenon on how they can then take that and use it for their own personal sort of technological development. This was a wild aspect of UFOs I'd never heard of. Um, and and they were definitely willing to talk about it and and, and elaborate what their intentions were. And um, it was a wild, wild ride to, to work with these people for, for a few months as I got their stories down. Interesting. Uh, more women, more men, any other findings after all this research and, and putting the book together? Sure. Um, the vast majority of people who talk about UFOs, who write about UFOs as as a thing, are are male, uh, which is interesting. Typically, sort of middle aged or older. Um, more people who are willing to talk about abductions or being contacted by aliens or whatever the beings are, um, predominantly female. Um, so we have this interesting data sets that we can then we can work with. Um, it's a male-dominated field, sort of ufology is. But again, like I said, um, women are much more willing to talk about their personal experiences with UFOs, aliens, or, or again, whatever the phenomenon is. But I don't, you I don't could know. say, you know, let's, let's talk about this for a second. You could say women typically tend to be more willing to talk about personal things as opposed to men, right? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I I'm, I'm not an expert. Um, I don't have, <laughs> on women or I don't on wanna, UFOs? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> more, probably more an expert on UFOs than I am on yeah, women, right. but um, you know, I, I can't necessarily speak to that. But I can. I it's can, interesting, though. Right, women are much more willing, at least within the UFO community, yeah. to talk about their right. personal stories much more than men are. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna save some for the book because yes, you're gonna yes. sell some books. Uh, M. J. Benias. His new book is called "The UFO People: A Curious Culture." Seven o'clock. McNally Robinson, Grant Park, tonight. Good luck with the book, M. J. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for coming in. 20 years ago, Winnipeg hosted the 1999 Pan Am Games. And last week, and again this week, we are remembering. And uh, joining us now to talk about those games 
20 years ago, the president and CEO of those Winnipeg 1999 Pan Am Games, Don McKenzie, is here in studio. Good to see you, Don. Oh, it's great to be here. <laughs> Hard to believe that's 20 years ago. It sure is, except sometimes with the aches and pains in the morning, realize. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What would be your favorite memory from the oh, games? Oh, the whole thing. I mean... It started with Larry Desjardins when he was the uh, minister here, and Larry invited Sarah and I out to um, Regina for the Western Canada Games, and because he wanted to have games here in, in Manitoba. And then that was in 86. and 87, again, he invited my wife and I to go to Indianapolis where, where the Pan Am Games were being held. And uh, it was just wonderful. I mean, he wanted it. So we put together a proposal uh, to the city, and we went to council, and uh, it was unanimous. I think the vote was uh, 28 to 1. <laughs> Back in those days, there was a lot of counselors. Yeah. And then at that time, um, um, Bill Norrie called me, and he says, Don, I want you to lead the uh, the charge. And he says, but I'd like to have a gal with you. And I said, well, that'd be wonderful. And he says, do you have anybody mind? I said, yes, Barbara Huck. I mean, Barbara Huck uh, was great for media, and, and she did a great job. So we traveled all over the world. But the biggest part of it was... Um, Gary and Janice. I mean, they, I mean, you're not very often you have a, the premier of your province traveling all over the world to, to get games, and him and Janice did a wonderful job. And I, I went, we had the um, wind-up uh, uh, the 20-year anniversary um, last week. I mean, I, I recognized them and my wife because the Janice and my wife uh, entertained the women of, of Paso. Right. And as you know, they control it. Because <laughs> we, um, uh, they were in Pula Park here. And uh, Paquita, it was Mario Vasquez Rania, his, his wife, and he was the head of, of Paso. Mm. And uh, she wanted to go shopping. So um, uh, both uh, Sarah and Janice, uh, sorry, Janice and my wife, uh, Sarah, um, took her upstairs. There was a beautiful women's clothing up there, and I don't remember the name of it, but uh, there was a mannequin there. And Paquita walked over and says, I want that. And um, she spoke a little bit of English, but not, but she had an interpreter. And so the girl come over, what size? Oh, no, no, the, the interpreter says, no, she wants it. She wanted to take the mannequin from shoes that they had, and she took it just like that. <laughs> and, what, and, and they said, well, what about um, getting the right side? No, no, she has a seamstress at home. She'll look after it. Wow. So then they walked down to Danye, and uh, I guess the, the word got through the, the mall at that time because mm-hmm. Danny was a little smarter, and they took the mannequin again, but she added a whole bunch of extras. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's great members. Yeah, I mean, that's right. a part of it. That was just part of it, getting the games. Yeah. And then well, once... So uh, let, let, me, let me ask you a question about that. Uh, they ended up being a, a wonderful games. Yeah. Uh, here we are 20 years later looking back on it as one of the highlights in Winnipeg's oh, history. No question. Were there any moments where you thought, we can't do this, we, mm-hmm. we aren't going to pull this off, or was it always, we can do this? We can always do that, and I said that right from the start. I mean, it's the people. I mean, we have wonderful people here, and uh, we had 2,000 volunteers, and they went, did a wonderful job. My uh, the staff person came to me and said, because we only wanted 1,800, she came to me one day and she says, Don, we got 2,000, what do I do? I said, you don't do anything. I said, you're not refusing anybody. And they made the games. The sports community did. We let the sports look after the sports, and the volunteers helped them, and that's why it was successful. Do you still have your salmon shirt? Oh, yes. I wore it, I wore it on last week. <laughs> did you <laughs> yeah. really? Yeah. yeah. I oh, wonder yeah. what one of those would be worth on oh, eBay these days. I, well, you know, we go, we go south for the winter, and I've seen them all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah people still wearing them. Yeah. I can mean, I, can so I? Those, those great moments. Yeah. yeah. Super. Well, speaking of great moments, can I play a great moment for me? Sure. From, from the games yeah. in 1999 here in Winnipeg. Take a listen, and then we'll talk about it with the then president and CEO of those games, Don McKenzie. For 16 long years. Back again, Randy Bachman, Burton Cummings, Jim Kale, Randy Peterson from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, Winnipeg's very own, the Guess Who? 
How did you manage that? Well, I, I actually had a phone number for, for... He helped me when we were bidding, eh? He, he did a, a song on Canada, yeah. and he did a wonderful job. So I, he lived in... Uh, his mom, I think, lived in Transcona. I had their phone number, so that's how I got a hold of him, because he was down in California. And she got a hold of him and said, you know, we're coming. And I wanted them. There was nobody else we could want. I mean, yeah. that was wonderful. I mean, so Winnipeg, oh, so, so many. Well, that's right? what it was all yeah. about. Yeah. But getting back to that story with Paquita, when uh, Gary and Janice and Sarah and I went over to Lillehammer for the Olympics there, we had a hospitality. And she walked in with you, the outfit you bought here. So, wow. I mean, that said everything. It was, it was just incredible. Yeah. And then down in Argentina, there was about... Um, 15 or 20 of the gals down there, and I was in there for a meeting, and she said, I could hear her saying, you're going for Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah. Is it time for us to do something like that again? Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. We have to. I mean, this is what it's all about. Uh, there was an article in the paper about three or four years ago about 11.8% difference in Manitoba and any other province. But we do the most giving, and we are. And it was the volunteers and, and the people of sports made this game. So no question. Yeah. And we, we did it on a shoestring budget, oh, too. $150 million, We had an $8 million surplus. You know, unlike some other games I don't want to talk about. But Well, yeah. I mean, and and really, that's in true Winnipeg, Winnipeg fashion, you isn't betcha. it? You betcha. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it was, uh, it was wonderful. I mean, uh, we just did. And I was down, and in, in, uh, I remember at um, in Toronto, and um, uh, I can't remember the runner, the, the top runner in, in Canada, and he was in the Olympics, and they were having a, a contest in, in Toronto with the best runner from the United States. Mm. And um, uh, we, he beat him. And the fellow from, uh, when the fellow came up from, from Japan, he says, Don, are you, yeah. And he says, yeah. Oh, he says, I want to make a deal with you. And he just shook my hand just like that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Panasonic. Yeah. And he said, Panasonic. He says, yeah, we're making, yeah. we're going to pr- provide all that stuff, just on handshake. Yeah. I mean, you don't do that in any other place, boy. Yeah. I've had a construction company for years. It was all handshake. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, Don, thanks for coming in and, and chatting about oh, it. It's wonderful. fun to, you know, go back a couple oh. of decades like that. They were, they were great times. And I think it's, I think you're right. I think we got to do something like it again. Oh, I agree. I mean, all of Canada has to. I mean, I was disappointed when Calgary backed out. I mean, they, they had a, did a wonderful job and they had a surplus too. We had a surplus. I mean, not many mm. people would say that. Yeah. No. Don I, McKenzie, yeah. nice to see you. Thanks for coming thank in Thank you today. very much. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, great. Thank Don you. McKenzie, he was the president and CEO of the Winnipeg 1999 Pan Am Games. We will continue to reminisce about the games as we go along here this week. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.